Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for being here. Thank you for staying subscribed. It is so great to introduce my guest today, Sylvia Pedham. She is a Colorado-based historical researcher and author who has written a number of books that involve true crime, specifically cold case investigations. She is here to talk about her recent publication, a book called In Search of the Blonde Tigress, The Untold Story of Eleanor Jarman. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. So where did you get the idea for this book? Well, you'll probably laugh. I I do a lot of very thorough historical research, but I literally bumped into Eleanor Jarman on Wikipedia I found a a list of long-lost fugitives, and she was believed and still is believed to have been the the longest-running female fugitive in America. And I thought, well, here's a real challenge. Absolutely. Have there been other books written about her? No, that was uh, another motivating factor. Nobody else had written about her, anybody that I knew of anyway. And I've never found anything else except for some very sensationalized newspaper articles over the years. And I learned through the course of my research that they were just sensationalized to sell newspapers, but no serious biography or real digging into her. I wanted to know who she was as a person and and then kind of take a stab at trying to find her. So Eleanor Jarman, uh, that was her married name, right? Right. She was born. She was born as um, actually Ella. The Eleanor came later, and I don't know why. She was born as Ella Marie Barrent in Sioux City, Iowa, in 1901. And she had a modest, unassuming upbringing, right? She grew up in a large uh, immigrant family. Her parents had come from Germany, and 
It seemed like everybody in her family worked in one of the several meat packing plants in Sioux City. I gather they were um, working class, rather poor, but a large intact family. So she was working as a waitress in her mid-teens when she met the man who would become her husband. She, in her court testimony, said she had been working off and on as a waitress since the age of 12. So, yes, she started out working as a waitress and met her husband probably over a cup of coffee. And his name was Michael Roy Jarman. Correct. So what were things like between them? Well, I wasn't there, but I understand that uh, he had some drinking problems. It was kind of a rocky marriage. They had two two boys and uh, lived in Sioux City briefly, but then moved to Chicago. And it was in Chicago that he, uh, quote, abandoned the family. I don't know if, if she kicked him out because of his drinking or if he just didn't provide for her or what, but they... They went their separate ways in Chicago, although they never divorced, as far as I could tell. So what does she do in Chicago? It's got to be tough as, as a single it, mother. Yes, I'm sure it was very hard. It was, this was during uh, the Depression years, Prohibition years, gangster era. Uh, she, she worked as a waitress in various different restaurants. That's what she had been trained as, and that's what she did, and uh, she went from one wait- waitress job to another, and at probably in well, it was in the the winter of 1932-33 that she met a man named George George Dale, and he was participating in kind of petty robberies around town and put food on the table for her children. So I'm not rationalizing her behavior, but uh, maybe she did whatever she could just to to feed her children and make sure they had a roof over their heads. So she kind of got involved into the true crime with him. Right, right. What do we know about George Dale's background? George was brought up also in a large family. He came from a town south of St. Louis, several brothers and sisters. I think his father worked in a small shop. I think he was a, a grocer. But George worked in Chicago at this time, at first anyway, in a um, factory making radios. And somewhere along the line, I think he just decided there's got to be an easier way to to make some money. And so we started going around doing what were called daylight robberies. And this was just robberies in the daytime, obviously, where if a shopkeeper was home or in his shop alone, um, he and his partner, and then Eleanor became the third partner, would kind of walk around the store, mingle around, and then uh, hold up the hold up the shopkeeper and rob his cash register and take some merchandise. If there were other people in the store, they just wandered off and went to another store. Do you have any idea how they met? There, how was, they some, first... there was some mention that they may have met in what was called a, quote, beer flat and a flat being an apartment and a place where they served um, beer during Prohibition. There was apparently a lot of these in Chicago and probably a lot in every other city as well all over the country. But 
they were usually run by somebody who had a day job and in the evening um, would just invite his neighbors over and serve beer and everybody would pay him a quarter or something. And I think that's where they met, but I, I don't have firm confirmation for that. So as, as you've already talked about a bit in, in early 1933, a series of robberies start happening in Chicago, which are reported as being committed uh, by a man or, or men and a woman. Two men and one woman. But what the newspapers picked up on was the woman. Uh, Eleanor by no means was the leader of the three of them, but the newspapers would come out and, and say in headlines, girl bandit and her pals or you know, something to the effect that it was a woman in charge of robbing these stores. And it started off rather on a small scale, but uh, throughout the summer of 1933, uh, I think they got a little more brazen. It caused quite a stir in the news, but uh, usually they played up the, the girl part more than the other two. Was, was there anything specific about her that, that people remembered? Well, she was kind of petite and blonde, but nobody ever really could identify her. And, well, the newspapers played her up as being vicious and, and dangerous and menacing, but I've read every word in the court transcripts afterwards, and the, the witnesses in the court trials uh, said, no, she did not hit anyone. She didn't kick the victims when they were on the ground. She didn't, she didn't do all these things that she was accused of in the newspapers. And it's my belief that the newspapers just sensationalized the story to sell more newspapers. And that's how newspapers would later give her the nickname, the Blonde Tigress, right? That's correct. And interestingly, just before their arrest and before she was called the Blonde Tigress, there was a cartoon in the Chicago Tribune and it showed men, kind of sad-looking criminal types, lined up on like in a, a lineup in a police station, and above their heads were various animals, like an alligator and a hyena and a giraffe. I mean, just all kinds of different animals. And and the wording in the cartoon said, "We we need to start calling criminals by their." the animal characteristics that they display. <laughs> and it was shortly after that, probably a week or two later, that the, the same newspaper, the Tribune, came up with the Blonde Tigress, and that just stuck. It was a headline from then on. So in August 1933, another store is robbed, a store owned by an elderly man named Gustav Ho. Would you walk us through that robbery Tell us what happened. Well, I think it. I think that robbery probably started out pretty much like uh, any of the others. The the trio, Eleanor, her boyfriend George, and the other man, his name was Leo, went into a store and they claimed in their testimony that they were just going in to buy a shirt, but obviously they were stretching the truth there a little bit. But they there were no other customers. These were very typical. Uh, shops in the city in the in that era in the 1930s, where the shopkeeper would live in a in an apartment behind the store, and it was not uncommon to be the only customers in one of those stores. And 
um, they went in and looked around and apparently there was some sort of scuffle. And I, it's not clear even from reading the court transcripts who started the scuffle or what, but the, the two men and the shopkeeper got into some sort of argument about the size of the shirt or whatever. And that's when George, the boyfriend pulled out his gun and uh, shot him. Now, obviously there's more to it than that doesn't sound like a very detailed description of a holdup, but they were no doubt robbing the cash register at the same time. Eleanor claimed that she was in the back of the store looking at neckties to buy for her boys. And I don't know if that's true or not. And the other man was the, he was always the getaway driver. So he made a beeline for the car they had parked out front. It was a 1928 Chevrolet and um, Eleanor and George came out, they got in the car and they sped away. But it was probably pretty much like the other holdups, except this time George pulled out a gun and he may have had a gun at other times, but there's no report of any shooting in any of the other attempts. I think this victim was the only one who fought back. And this, this Leo character, uh, Leo Menisi, uh, his his hand was hurt. His hand was hurt, and he claimed that that when George shot the shot the shopkeeper, that his hand was in the way and got a bullet in his hand. That that's all very unclear as to how many bullets were fired, or, but he got shot in the hand apparently during that same scuffle. But um, we weren't there. We don't, we don't really know. So the three of them flee. And she helps sew up Leo's wound, right? She did that. Yeah, that's kind of a minor part of the story. What what uh, I think we need to add in here is that several witnesses uh, saw the license plate and turned that information over to the police, and and the three of them were caught uh, because of the the license plate on the car. But yes, uh, Eleanor did try to repair his wound, but. She and, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, uh, Leo was actually the first one, the getaway driver, to be caught. And he spent a night out roaming around in Chicago, and his hand was hurting him more and more. And he finally called his wife, and she, the police were at, at their house, and they all connected up, and he turned himself in. Uh, Eleanor and George uh, were not caught for a couple more days, but it was during that that one day that Leo was on his own that he went over to Eleanor's apartment and she tried to fix his wound, but it was hurting him too much. So that's why he turned himself in. So so what was going on with Eleanor's children as this was happening? At the time that Eleanor was on the run, that was just for a few days, she had actually been in touch with a former boyfriend And he had taken her two children, they were about nine and 11 or so at the time, he had taken them uh, to Sioux City to stay with her sister. And uh, Eleanor's sister in Sioux City ended up raising those two boys until they were adults, essentially. They did get passed around the extended family a bit, but the sister essentially was in charge of them from then on. So the police then find this ex-boyfriend, right? And, and he reveals their hideout. 
he did, and I think he did it very reluctantly. Uh, he turned out, the ex-boyfriend, uh, Richard, turned out to be a surprise character to me. I didn't even know he existed when I started the research, but as I dug into court testimony, he was mentioned, and I dug into prison records, and he was mentioned again. Uh, I think he was, well, he the prison records actually quoted him as being a very close friend. I think he had no choice but to reveal the hideout. He was he had just driven back from Sioux City. That's 500 miles. If you can imagine doing that in a 1928 Chevrolet, he probably drove all night and uh, on poor roads and was exhausted. And then they probably interrogated him for 10 or 12 hours as to where she was. And I, I think he just had no choice but to reveal the address where they were hiding out. And it was after that that Eleanor and her boyfriend, George, were arrested. Did they give up immediately, or did they uh, put up a fight? No, they didn't put up a fight. They, they, um, there was an interesting quote in the, in the Tribune about the police. There were about a dozen of them, and they, the writer said that they went to their apartment door and put their shoulder to the door and barged in and just you know, arrested them without a fight. So... So just to clarify, the license plate is written down by a bystander. Correct. That leads police to the Manises, and they talk to the wife, yeah. who connects them to Leo. Right. And Leo tell, then tells the detectives that he had been hanging out with Eleanor and George. Right. He, uh, Leo essentially gave up a lot of information a lot more easily. I think he needed help for his hand that was really hurting him, and he was trying to, you know, get in as little trouble as possible. He was just, quote, the getaway car driver. And uh, in court, uh, it was Eleanor and George kind of blaming Leo and Leo kind of blaming Eleanor and George. So I don't think there was any love lost there in Leo trying to put the blame on George. But George did pull the trigger and he did eventually get executed in the electric chair um, Eleanor and Leo were both sentenced to 199 years in prison, which is just an unimaginable amount of time. And we'll get into Eleanor's story, which um, is really the heart of the story, more than just the, the murder itself. Right. Uh, prosecutors wanted the death penalty for all three, right? And even the jury d- debated for a while. This uh, whole whole court case was just sort of railroaded through. It, it's amazing to go back in time and realize that the the murder, the arrest, the sentencing, the trial, and the trial, everything occurred in the month of August 1933. I mean, you would never get a court case to go that fast after an arrest. There had been a lot of crime. Of course, there seems to always be a lot of crime in Chicago, but They were having a crime wave at the time, and there had been, apparently just a week or two before their arrest, there had been a policeman shot and killed in a courtroom, and the district attorney and everybody was just adamant they were going to get as many people to the electric chair as possible. There's interesting quotes to that effect, that they were just going to arrest and sentence and send, send to the electric chair as many people as they could. 
So yes, the uh, the newspapers, the public, the district attorney, the prosecutor, everybody wanted uh, the death penalty for all three of them. But uh, George, the one who actually fired the gun, was the only one who was executed. And just as a reminder, this is a wild time in, in not only Chicago history, but the history of American crime. Uh, John Dillinger and others are making constant headlines. Dillinger's in and out of Chicago. Well, uh, Eleanor and George's contemporaries were Bonnie and Clyde. They were off doing their bank robberies and whatever else they were doing in the Midwest at the same time. So the newspapers, they were writing about Bonnie and Clyde. They were also writing about Eleanor the Blonde Tigress and her pals. I mean, Eleanor was the <laughs> the one they focused on, but she was kind of, she was a contemporary of Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Uh, and George, to, to his credit, I guess, uh, he, he must have loved Eleanor because he did defend her to the end. He, he did. In, in the court testimonies, he, he defended her, as you say, yes. And the night before he was executed, according to a newspaper reporter, and again, you can't believe them all, but um, he did say that George wrote a love letter to Eleanor. Now, that's not surfaced. I don't know what he said, but it was something to the effect that, you know, remember me to your boys, something along that line. Hmm. So where was Eleanor incarcerated? And was she able to uh, smoothly assimilate into her new life? Eleanor went to the only woman's prison in Illinois. It was called, it wasn't actually even called a prison. It was called a reformatory. It was called the Oakdale Reformatory for Women. And it was in a, a small town called Dwight, it was about 100 miles southwest uh, of Chicago. And it opened just a few years earlier, I think in 1930, as a real progressive place to incarcerate women, but not just, it was, they, they were very adamant, the administrators, that they didn't want to uh, punish women, they wanted to reform them and let them go back to society. And uh, as citizens and, you know, productive members of society. So uh, everything was done in, in that train of thought as to trying to help these women, not just punish them. And so that was quite a, a progressive movement at the time, this reformatory. And I got very interested in researching just through newspaper articles, uh, some prison records that I got through the Illinois State Archives, just reading about this, the women there, and they, they were encouraged to work and to go to school, and they didn't even call the where they lived, they didn't call themselves, they called them rooms, and they were allowed to put pictures on the wall, and it was kind of referred to more like a, a college dormitory than, than a prison cell. So she she fit right in. Eleanor did, and I. It's my belief that she was always kind of a follower. Um, she was not this girl banded out to murder people. She she fit in quite well, and and administrator called her a model prisoner. She worked in the laundry, correct? Yes, Eleanor worked in the laundry. Uh, there were various jobs that all had to do with running of the prison, obviously. I mean, some worked in the kitchen and some worked on the lawns and 
various different types of jobs and, and Eleanor worked in the laundry. So I, I don't have any, any firsthand knowledge of what she did, but there's a great picture in the book of a couple other women and they were just, looked like they were having a wonderful time. I mean, I don't think it was like hitting a rock pile all day. Um, I think it was probably the best you could imagine for being in a prison, so-called prison at that, in that era. And I think she probably would have stayed there indefinitely, but uh, somehow she hooked up with another prisoner, a woman named Margaret, and uh, escaped. We will be back after these brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Would you tell us more about her, her friend, Margaret? What, what did Margaret do to find herself in this place? Well, Margaret didn't, wasn't admitted until, uh, I think, 1939. Of course, Eleanor was there since 1933 in prison. But what Margaret did was she went around and worked as a housekeeper in different people's homes. And she apparently only worked for very wealthy people. And while she was cleaning their houses, she would rob them of their jewels or cash or whatever she could fi find in the houses, mink coats or 
obviously she didn't last very long in one house or another, but her forte, if we can call it that, was stealing out of people's houses. The two women, their, quote, rooms were close to each other, and they may have met each other over breakfast or lunch or dinner. They ate in the same area where they were sleeping. But I don't know if they were friends. I, the, the more I learned about Margaret, she she was really a hardened criminal, and she had escaped from other prisons. I think she had something like three escapes already in her criminal career. So I think she kind of befriended Eleanor. It's my theory she befriended Eleanor because Eleanor was the one who was so notorious, and she was on the FBI's wanted list, and uh, I think uh, Margaret probably thought if she took Eleanor along, the police would look for her and not for Margaret. And that was Margaret Carringer, right? A.K.A. Mary Foster. And what they did is they uh, were working, they were cleaning the staff's quarters at the time, and they had access to some clothing that the staff members had. And one of them stole a, a polka dotted dress that got a lot of press and the other a blue suit. And with those two items of clothing, they just climbed over a fence. It was just a 12 foot high uh, barbed wire fence. They climbed over the fence in broad daylight and nobody saw them, which is amazing. But uh, this prison was in, in such a reform state of thought that they didn't have guards on walls or anything. They just kind of, the, the fence was really more to keep other people from coming in and the prisoners going out. It was more of an honor system, but they just took the stolen clothing, uh, climbed over the fence, changed clothes on the other side because they left their prison clothes there, which people found later and uh, started hitchhiking. And that was very common at the time for women to hitchhike. They, they looked like two nice-looking young ladies, nicely dressed, and they got rides and went off toward Chicago. And that's the last uh, anybody saw of them until Margaret was caught a couple months later. Interesting part to me is how they managed to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So the search begins in, in the 1930s. It's still pretty hard to track people. Yes, and, and that, again, what I really love about this historical research is going back in time. It's really important to set the scene in the, in the historic context and to, to think about, okay, what, what did they, how did they communicate? What could they have done? And, for instance, um, I spent some time researching telephones from that era. At that time, just about any hotel or restaurant or public place, bus station or whatever, had rows of phone booths and you could go in and, and, and just call the operator and ask for a collect call to so-and-so. And perhaps Eleanor called her old boyfriend or called uh, a sister of her old boyfriend or somebody just to alert them that she, she was out and about. But she could have uh, just holed up in a hotel somewhere for a day or two and and written her old boyfriend a letter because mail delivery was twice a day back then. It was very fast and efficient. So that part is just mere speculation. But uh, 
was the part that really intrigued me, kind of going back and doing that uh, historical detective work. Her, her old uh, boyfriend, his name was Richard Slater, and you argue that he had the means, motive, and opportunity, right? Correct. He, he seemed to, to care about her. He, he seemed to be in a situation where he could have assisted her. I, I certainly think so. And he, he was in a perfect position to assist her. He, he had connections with the underworld. He had been the accountant for Jack Zuda, who was connected with Al Capone. And he had, a, he had a whole bunch of different jobs, but one of them at the time was driving a taxi. So, I mean, he could have easily picked her up and taken her to one of his buddies somewhere. And he also, uh, he was married at the time too, but I don't think that stopped him from what I've heard just filtering down. I've made contacts with his descendants and we've all kind of come to the agreement that his having a wife wouldn't have necessarily stopped him from helping out Eleanor. But he did own a a piece of property north of Chicago uh, with a little uh, house on it and I can easily imagine him taking her to that kind of a a retreat and having some of his underworld buddies checking in on her, bringing her groceries, and then generally assimilating her into society. And I'm quite sure that's how she survived. She just blended in and worked as a waitress again. So while she was serving her time, there was hope for parole. Uh, she was a model prisoner, as, you, as you've said. But you write that there was a suggestion just before her escape that she had possibly gotten word that one of her sons was in trouble. And this news had come in just before her escape. And that was a possible motive for her desire to leave on her own. The uh, The article you're referring to, yes, there was an article in the paper to that effect. I don't put a lot of credence in that. I mean, it may, it may well have been, but I, I think it was more of a spontaneous thing with this woman, Margaret, the fellow prisoner who said, look, I can get us over this fence. Wouldn't you rather be out, out there than in here? And she probably uh, just went along with it. I don't think she, uh, I, I know that she cared about her sons. She often mentioned them in the court trial and whatever she was quoted as saying, oh, what will, what will happen to my poor boys, that sort of thing. But, And I'm sure she was concerned. And if there had been some report of them perhaps getting in trouble or this or that or running away from home, uh, I, I, don't, I, I think she was very intelligent. She actually had a, according to her prison record, she had a very high IQ. I don't think for a minute that she escaped and went to Sioux City to look for her children. She knew her sister was taking care of him. Her sister had been in touch with her, and she knew her her boys were being looked after. So I don't think that was a motivating factor for the escape. How was she able to stay connected to her family? Well, again, uh, there's not a whole lot to go on, but many years later, actually in in 1993, her one of her sons came forward and said that he was trying to find her because he wanted to 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 request a, a, a pardon and 
he said that, that the two of them had communicated through newspaper ads, which I find really interesting because you kind of hear of that, but it's very a very old-fashioned way of communicating, whereas somebody would put an ad in a newspaper. I think he mentioned the Kansas City paper, and, and they would just put in something that only meant something to them, like, let's have coffee. And if you said, let's have coffee, and then the other person was reading the newspaper and went to the classified ads and saw, let's have coffee, that would mean that she was doing okay. She was well or something like that. I mean, they had like a little code. And I've never been able to find those um, any any actual records or old newspapers with those in it, but that would be kind of a goose chase to look for anyway. But so I don't know if that's true or not, but apparently um, one of her sons had kept in touch with her that way. And then he died in 1993, that same year he went public. And in 1994, one of his sons went public with an alias that he believed that uh, Eleanor had used throughout the years. Right. And this is where you used your years of experience as a genealogist to attempt to track down Eleanor's whereabouts. You had a name, an alias, to help start your search. Can you talk about the research methods you used, the the challenges you faced as you attempted to find out what happened to her? Well, I found that a fascinating part of this whole process. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Ancestry.com where you can build family trees, but what I did was I, I created a family tree for Eleanor under the name of her alias and found, well, in that process, I found all kinds of, I mean, like more than 100 women who could have been her, and then I had to go through a process of weeding out the ones that didn't fit. I had to take out any any woman. I mean, I had to pick women who were approximately the same age, but I had to find women with no parents, no siblings, no children, uh, absolutely no other family members whatsoever, and whittle it down. And I finally whittled it down to one woman who worked as a waitress, which was a huge plus, and lived and died in Denver, Colorado. The big important part of this mystery was I contacted the Denver probate office and got a copy of this woman's probate records. And she had not left uh, a will. And uh, the probate officials had spent a year and a half searching for heirs and determined that she had no heirs. So I really do believe that this woman with no heirs, no family know nothing, who worked as a waitress in Denver, very well could have been uh, Eleanor. I've been researching this woman now for years, and I, I've i asked a lot of different genealogists to check up on me and see what I've missed, and nobody can find any connection with this woman to anybody. So I can just picture her. I've I found out through uh, city directories the only things I could find about this woman was where she lived and where she worked. And one of those restaurants in Denver is still open. And unfortunately, they don't have any old records. But uh, I'm going to go there for breakfast one day. I've, <laughs> I've been there. Um, 
I can just imagine her serving serving a cup of coffee. And you had learned this from a family member, right? That that she might have used a name she had been called in her childhood, M- Marie. Well, it was her middle name, but the last name. Um, I'll just leave that anonymous for a while. <laughs> um, that has no connection that I can see. I mean, it could just have been a name she picked out of the phone book. I don't know. You should suggest that the uh, restaurant name a menu item after her, the, the blonde tigress <laughs> yeah, uh, cheeseburger. That would be great, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to find out if anybody uh, knew this woman who worked. She worked from 1951 to 1974, just within a few blocks of each other on Colfax Avenue, which is the main uh, east-west street in, in downtown Denver. I'm sure somebody must remember her, so I'm putting another plea out. If anybody can help me with that, I would sure appreciate it. So I'm not a mother. <laughs> I don't have two sons. Um, I have a mother, <laughs> but but it's hard for me to imagine not reaching out to your boys for the rest of your life in, in person. I mean, it, 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 it seems pretty selfish to me. I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about it. I think that, well, I, I know from reading some of the newspapers from that early 90s era that the, the son was afraid that by going public about Eleanor's criminal background would negatively affect his, he had a business in Sioux City, Iowa, um, reflect badly on the family. I think now that we're several generations removed, there's a whole lot of interest. And I've, I've been in touch with some family members and they're very interested. But the immediate, the son, I think he was, he was trying to distance himself from her. And I think she was distancing herself from him and his brother just to protect them. I, I, I'm sure that she loved her sons, but I think she didn't want to expose them to the shame and that's probably the best word I can think of, the shame of having a an escaped fugitive in the family. I mean, I, I think she was trying to protect them. Right, but, but that was already public information, right? That their mother was an escaped fugitive. Yeah, not for a number of years, though. I think during most of their adult lives, that was not common knowledge. I mean, the family knew it, but it wasn't something that, people they interacted with in their hometown may have known. Yeah, people forgot about it over time. That, that, that makes sense. The, the FBI was involved, right, at, at one point in trying to apprehend her. Uh, when did people, authorities, finally give up and stop looking for her? Well, the FBI was tracking her at least until the early 50s. I'm not sure when they finally did call it quits, but there there's a a quote, she met with some family members in the 70s. I didn't mention that before briefly. And she told them in that meeting, according to what they told the newspapers. So, you know, it's all third, third-hand information that she said, don't worry that they've given up looking for me long ago. So somewhere along the in the 50s, I think they kind of quit looking for her. And I've been in touch with the FBI myself and 
they don't have any interest now. I mean, I thought maybe they would, but they don't. Yeah. So tell us about some of the other cold case investigations you've worked on in the past. Well, I've lived in Boulder County, Colorado for more than 50 years. I went to school in Boulder at the University of Colorado, and I got very interested in Boulder history. And so early on in my career, I became kind of the local history author and wrote a number of books on on local history. But in um, 2004, I got very interested in a a murder victim who was buried in a local cemetery. And we called her, I say we, I mean, I worked with the sheriff's office and some forensic experts on that case, and we called her Boulder Jane Doe. And I very naively went to my local sheriff at the time and I said, why don't you just dig her up and I'll help you with the research and we'll figure out who she is and get her name on the grave. And that's exactly what we did. It took six years and I was surprised that they worked with me, but it was a huge learning experience. And I wrote a book on that too called Someone's Daughter in Search of Justice for Jane Doe. And that's actually just been reprinted with some updated information and made into a documentary that's streaming on Hulu right now. So it's kind of had a revival, but it was working on that Jane Doe case that was a turning point for me. And I became very interested in missing persons and unidentified remains. And I wrote a book actually for for family members of long-term missing people. I wrote a kind of a textbook for law enforcement on researching cold cases. I wrote an anthology of cold cases, uh, just kind of for general readers. And um, just, you know, one thing led to another, and Eleanor Jarman became my latest passion. So I'm just appreciative of this opportunity to get her story out. Absolutely. And you have a, a website we can refer listeners to. Just my name, sylviapetum.com. People have to remember that I, my name is spelled differently. It's S-I-I-L-V-I-A. Um, that's the way I was named. So it's S-I-L-V-I-A-P-E-T-T-E-M.com. Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Eleanor Jarman. And uh, I, I guess this is still a, a cold case. Well, technically, and there's no way we'll ever know if... Eleanor is the woman buried in Denver unless she were exhumed and DNA could be compared. But I, the only way to, to do an exhumation is to have a, a court uh, warrant to, to exhume, I mean, by a judge or have the family request it. And in this case, there is no family for the person who's named on the grave. So I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Sylvia Pedham. She is the author of In Search of the Blonde Tigress, the untold story of Eleanor Jarman. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.